This is the Wicked South Podcast, exploring the dark history of the Murdoch legal dynasty and fascinating criminal cases on both sides of the law. The headlight beam drew closer, brighter, an angry eye growing ever larger as it drew near, followed by the sound, the steam, a shaking rumble. A westbound C and WC freight train plunged ahead in the dark, steamy July night. Then the light and the sound and the fury of the steel overtook Randolph Murdoch Sr. On July 24, 1940, the Hampton County Guardian reported that the impact hurled the automobile approximately 900 feet up the track, totally wrecking it. And Murdoch's body was found beside the track approximately 150 feet from the crossing. Midnight trains, tragic accidents, and mysterious deaths are recurring themes that steam through the timeline of the Murdoch family dynasty, leaving behind tragedy and fortune. Today, we're going to explore and possibly solve an 83-year-old mystery that killed a member of the Murdoch family of Hampton County and helped launch a legal dynasty and a troubled legacy. Hello, friend. As always, that's the lovely voice of Michael DeWitt and the great writing of Michael DeWitt Jr. I am Matt Harris. Hello, Seton Tucker. Hello. Uh, we've got the Wicked South podcast Facebook page up and running. Do we not? We do. Okay, so you can check that out and make comments. We'll have some extra information on that as well. How are you doing today, Michael? I am lovely. It's, it's hot in the 14th Judicial Circuit. <laughs> uh, other than that. <laughs> oh, yeah. That that uh, happens in the old low country. It does get a little hot and humid. Steamy. So this is going to dive into the the first of the most famous Murdochs of the uh, solicitor title. And this is a man who died at a young age. There's been a mystery surrounding it, and we're going to dive into that. A little bit about this Murdoch, Randolph Murdoch. Just after the turn of the century, Murdoch was well on his way to creating a Southern legal dynasty. He was fresh out of the U.S. Naval Academy and the University of South Carolina School of Law, like the rest of the Murdochs to follow. Murdoch founded his own personal injury law firm, at first a one-man practice in 1910. And then Seton, uh, talk about a little bit his marriage and his kids. Murdoch married Etta Lavinia Harvey, the daughter of a local doctor in 1914, and they had two sons, including Randolph Buster Murdoch Jr., before she died on September 15, 1918. Randolph Murdoch then ran and was elected to the 14th Circuit Solicitor in 1920. This is the beginning of almost a 100-year run of Murdoch's holding that position in the 14th Circuit, uh, 14th Circuit which was that five counties, Michael, I think that encompasses? That's right. Yeah. Five counties. And this, he was a, a popular guy, and his name was in the headlines around the state, successful lawyer, civic organizations, and his son Buster, again, another USC law school guy, would join him at both a law firm and the solicitor's office. So he's on the rise, I guess, at this point, Michael? All the stars just seem to align for this, this rising Southern lawyer. I found a headline uh, right before his death. Grand jury lauds Murdoch, February 28, 1940, headline in The Guardian, endorsed for re-election. So 
you know, everything was going well in his professional life, but tragedy was bearing down at high speed on him, and he, and he just did not know it. And then the high speed it refers to that train's uh, Seton. Well, also noticed in one of your articles that you wrote, you talked about their names were peppered all through the society pages. Uh, they featured their comings and goings, their family trips and garden parties. Newspapers of the day, you um, you have your society pages. And uh, so even the Murdoch women, the Murdoch wives, you know, if they held a tea party, a garden party, um, you know, they'd be, they, you might find them on a society page and there'd be an article on the front page where the men had won a big court case. Back then, the society pages did things like, the Murdoch family is enjoying a lovely vacation at Esto Beach this this week. Wow. Um, the, uh, the 14th Circuit will be back open for business next week. You know, these old-time uh, newspapers, very, very interesting, very uh, society-oriented. I kind of miss that, all the things I wasn't invited to. <laughs> yes. Well, see, and that shows his name was, the Murdoch name was famous not just among attorneys, right? I mean, everybody knew that Murdoch name. Let's talk about the property in Almeida that they owned. Describe that property to, to us. If you recall, J.P. Murdoch II uh, bought a, uh, a big tract of land they called the Almeida Tract. He was involved in real estate dealings uh, um, as well as, you know, fertilizer, mining, all kinds of uh, businesses. And he purchased his big tract of land. And we heard, you know, the, the name Almeida many times uh, during the, the murder trial of Alex Murdoch. But it's been a, a a big tract of land in the Murdoch family since the early 1900s. And whether the Murdochs lived in Barnville on Main Street or whether they lived at Alameda, there's always been a railroad track uh, running through their lives and through their front yards. The I believe it's the Charleston and Western Carolina Rail Line, which now is CXX Transportation. They ran uh, trains right through uh, Alameda. If you, if you go to Randolph Murdoch's house now, Randolph III has, has passed away, obviously. You pull up right there at that intersection. You look right across the tracks, and you see um, the, the Murdoch family home. Yeah, we no, were Not there. even 100 yards from the tracks. We were there and saw it, and I was so surprised at how close the tracks were to the road. It just was unusual because you don't really see that in suburban living. <laughs> your railroad track uh, going through your neighborhood? Yeah. Through your front yard. Yeah. <laughs> Trains play a big part in the whole Murdoch scene. A lot of their money came from railroad lawsuits, personal injury lawsuits, but it also had a, a big effect on them early on when it comes to E.R. Ginn Jr., Little Ed. How does he tie into the Murdochs? I've tried to collect every history book I can that, about our area, and there's a history of the town of Varnville called Railroads and Sawmills, and in that history, now I don't know if uh, Randolph was living in Alameda at the time, but this accident happened in that area. Ed Yen, his father was a state senator. You know, they were much like the, the Murdochs, just kind of well-to-do uh, local family, but they lived in this small town of Varnville. Well, according to this Varnville history, Ed was a good Samaritan. He liked to hop on the, um, the rail cars. Now, keep in mind, this is, you know, Great Depression. Times are hard. But he'd hop on the rail cars and he'd ride up and down from Varnville to Early Branch, Alameda. And he'd, you know, anything extra the family had, cornmeal, cane syrup, you know, whatever, he'd ride around and share with his neighbors. And I think this was something he kind of did even into adulthood. He got his uh, his children to, to, to do it. I just, but they quit, he quit riding the trains after this uh, incident. When he was 18, he was trying to jump 
off the train in front of the Murdoch house. Now, I don't know if this Murdoch house was in Almeda or Varnville, but it's in the same general area. And he tried to jump off the train in front of the house and got caught. And one of his legs got ran over and mangled. Jeez. And Randolph Sr. was the first person to get to him and pulled him to safety, took him home to his to his uh, family, and they had to be horrified. Sure. Well, he had to wait till the next day when his father uh, came home from the Senate in Columbia to transport him to a real hospital for proper medical treatment. And, you know, that day he lost his leg um, to a surgeon saw. They had to amputate it on a, on a Charleston hospital table. Gosh, and if he had um, been able to get to the hospital sooner, maybe they could have saved his leg. Yeah. It's, it's highly possible. Back then, state-of-the-art medical care wasn't right there in, in Alameda, and it's still not today. You know, we have a hospital in Barnville, but Ed Ginn uh, went on to become a, a well-known and, and well-liked uh, teacher. Uh, he was a shop teacher here in Hampton. I think my father uh, told me uh, several stories about him. He, he uh, you know, had a, a court leg or a wooden leg his whole life, but he was uh, quite a well-known teacher and, and uh, you know, made an impact on, on people's lives. I mean, it's not unusual uh, shop teachers lose a finger or something along the way. <laughs> Is that rude to say? Yeah, that, that <laughs> My shop teacher in, in junior high uh, didn't have two, he only had three fingers. I, I took shop and I was scared I might lose a finger because I wasn't very good at this it. This is true. That's the beginning of this whole train thing because it becomes a big uh, narrative throughout the Murdoch history uh, because let's go to 1940, Randolph Murdoch's only 53. The Hampton County Coroner's jury ruled death by an accident because he gets by a train, right? And what, what are they saying about this, this train crash that kills this 53-year-old who is famous, not just for being an attorney, but in the society pages? This has to be a huge story. Well, I found two newspaper accounts. Now, obviously, the Associated Press is a news service, so their story was in multiple papers, but right. the Associated Press press wrote a story about it and the Hampton County Guardian had a big front page font solicitor killed by train Associated Press uh, reported that he was leaving a late night poker game around one o'clock on a Friday and this was July 19th if I've got my date right um, 1940 and his car stalled on the track according to the AP um, when the train uh, struck him the Hampton County Guardian uh, didn't say anything about a poker game they were a little kinder. They said uh, he was returning from a late visit with friends in Yamasee and that there was no court session that next day, so he was coming home late. So in light of those two newspaper reports, if you don't take into account any other evidence, the biggest theory that I've heard by by local historians and, and local gossips was that he was, you know, obviously poker game, there's alcohol involved, um, and they think, you know, alcohol was a factor. And that kind of fits into the whole Murdoch legacy. I mean, alcohol has been a big part uh, of their story, uh, just like trains. You know, Buster was involved in a moonshine conspiracy. That's what I was about. Do you think he was possibly partaking in some moonshine? (laughs) Oh, well, absolutely. And uh, when Randolph uh, won the Order of the Palmetto, and I included this detail in Fall of the House of Murdoch, they were telling stories. They, you know, different lawyers and family members would take the podium and they were sharing Murdoch family stories. And the story Alex told about his father um, was a drinking story. You know, this is the proudest moment of, of the man's career. You've got um, <laughs> judges and lawyers and sheriffs and 
the governor himself wasn't there, but someone, a representative from Columbia was there. And uh, he's talking about how his dad was, in quotes, out late serving the 14th Circuit, you know, and it's just uh. a family drinking story. So drinking stories are very much a part of the, the Murdoch family um, legend. And so it's not easy to it's not hard to assume that, OK, alcohol was involved. Well, let's talk about gambling. We now have heard some loose ties between Alec Murdoch and some gambling connections. And, you know, we're all still waiting to hear where all this missing money is. And was gambling part of their history as well? I don't really have any direct evidence that that was a, a big thing. Um, you know, uh, uh, alcoholism might be a genetic uh, thing that can be passed down from one generation to the other. Keep in mind, it's 1940. There's probably not a whole lot of entertainment in in um, in small town of a uh, small place like Hampton County. So a poker game on a Friday night um, was probably, especially if you were a well-to-do attorney or 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 judge, you know, poker games are probably quite common, and I don't uh, and know. No judgment any. there. No judgment for poker on Friday night, people. Don't write me a note. <laughs> yeah, no, that's just yeah, yeah, who, who hasn't had a good late night poker game, right? That's right. Exactly. That's right. So let's go into this train wreck some more. The, the rumors and gossip is that he's drunk and train hits him for that for that reason. But the engineer did testify. So what it, what was the engineer's story on what happened? Uh, according to, his, uh, to the newspaper articles. Um, the engineer was named W.W. Bartlett, and he testified that he didn't see the car anywhere near the tracks until he got about 40 yards away. And then when he got closer, Murdoch actually raised his hand as if he was waving to the train crew. And then when they got a little closer, the car started up and then stopped directly on the track. Hmm. Both accounts, the Associated Press and the Guardian, said the car mysteriously stopped in the middle of the crossing. Hmm. So that kind of begs the question, you know, did the car malfunction? Did he stop the car on the tracks deliberately? He'd been having some personal issues, and we'll get to that in a minute, but could this be suicide? So there are lots of conspiracy theories, and I've even heard the outlandish theories that someone in the Murdoch family was involved in that, and, and we'll get to that later. But I think that it's, it's something a lot less sinister caused this accident. Randolph Murdoch was only 53 years old when this accident occurred. And the Hampton County coroner, what did they say? The coroner's jury, uh, back then, you know, the coroner uh, would convene a, a jury to look at evidence and help decide. So they simply ruled it was an accident. Um, mm. But, you know, technology back then, you know, a coroner did not have to have any kind of special training. It was an elected position. You know, you could be, you know, the guy next door. Um, you know, just wanted to, to, to the job and, and ran for it. Look at the coroner, that Colleton County coroner that testified during the, the murder trial of Alex Murdoch. Um, he estimated the time of death by sticking his hand underneath the armpit. So I, I, you yes. had the, the, that was <laughs> kind of old school. <laughs> yeah, that was a mess. That was crazy. And he, like they talked about how he didn't have a, he didn't even have the thermometer, like a rectal thermometer, I think it was, right? Right. You know, he didn't even have one. And if he did need one, he'd ask somebody for one. Didn't carry one. Yeah, he just put the hand under the thing. And up until very recently, you didn't even have to have any sort of medical training in South Carolina to right. be a coroner. And so in a lot no of places are still training. the same, right? Because remember we had the, the one, uh, one of Drain's friends on talking about how some places. But in South Carolina, much, you yeah. do now have to have some sort of medical training. Yes. Just, let's stick with the trained theories. There's the theory that he was drunk. There was a theory 
that uh, he was just so sick that he decided to say, that's it, and I'll get run over by the train. Car malfunction. Car malfunction, car, uh, yeah. Or suicide. And so you have your theory after looking at all the facts, and what is that? Keep in mind that uh, Randolph was a personal injury attorney, and his son, Randolph uh, Jr., Buster, uh, was also a personal injury lawyer. Well, it's no surprise that there was a lawsuit that quickly followed this death. By October of that year, October 1st, Randolph Buster Murdoch Jr. filed a lawsuit against uh, the, the railroad company for the wrongful death of Randolph Sr. And before that, we saw a few train cases, but not a great many. Well, they filed this lawsuit and they claimed that the railroad crossing was in a rough, dangerous condition. His Murdoch's view was obscured by trees and tall underbrush um, on this foggy night and placed him in sudden and imminent peril, um, which doesn't really jive with the newspaper accounts. It sounds like the train saw Randolph and Randolph saw the train. He waved at him, but they settled the case. He he was asking for a hundred grand in that uh, lawsuit, which would be about $2 million today and court records filed on september 22nd of 1941 the next year showed that the case was settled but the amount was never disclosed so in light of that the final conspiracy theory that i've heard i guess i'm uh, guilty of going in these chat rooms on reddit or, or <laughs> facebook but you know when i first wrote about this in an article called trouble with trains uh that article was picked up by uh, newspapers all over the, the, the country, Washington Post, um, the Daily Mail over in, in uh, wow. England. But some of the theories I saw in comments was that Buster had something to do with it. Buster had arranged for his father to get killed so he could cash in on a lawsuit. But I don't think that was at all the case. And we will post a link to this article on our Facebook page, which is The Wicked South Podcast. So that brings us to your your theory as to what happened to Randolph Murdoch on that train wreck night. I think to find the answer to that dark and steamy night in July, I think we have to look back in Randolph's early history. You know I, me, I like to put myself into the, the character. Well, he was the son of a Civil War hero. He had no intentions of being a, a lawyer. He wanted to... Uh, to be a naval officer, and he actually uh, attended and was accepted into the U.S. Naval Academy at Annapolis, which is like the for the Army, it's the Army, the Navy equi- equivalent of West Point. Mm-hmm. You know, he was actually accepted as a cadet in the uh, in the Naval Academy, and he had big dreams. Uh, I can imagine he wanted to be, you know, he wanted to command battleships and uh, continue his family uh, legacy of being a war hero. But he was disqualified for military service. And I found uh, newspaper articles that said that uh, it was because of his heart. He had a some type of, you know, keep in mind that uh, health conditions aren't, you know, really made public in great detail in newspapers. But he had a like a congenital heart defect that uh, disqualified him for military service. So there's that piece of evidence. OK, so we got a mm-hmm. bad heart. He. He's not suited for military duty, so he returns home to attend law school, be a lawyer. Well, I found other pieces of evidence. In late 1938 and 1939, there were numerous newspaper articles in the Hampton County Guardian about his health problems. 
There was one in 1939 that had um, a big headline, Solicitor Stricken. And he was hospitalized for several months. And during that time, Buster was the assistant solicitor. So Buster just stepped in and ran the, the office of solicitor while his father's in the hospital. And keep in mind, the newspapers don't go into detail about, they say absolutely nothing about why he was in the hospital. But he was stricken. He's in the hospital seven months. And he was released from the hospital in April of 1940. And then, as you know, just a couple months later, the train crashed. So to me, it points to health problems. To me, I see, you know, he's 53, he's had a good life, but that heart has has plagued him and troubled him uh, throughout his life. And I think on that night, um, his, his congenital heart problem, something he was born with, something he could never fix, uh, I think it finally caught up with him that night and led to that fateful, fatal train crash. Well, that does seem like that. Is highly probable considering he had spent, what, se- did you say seven, seven months, months in, in uh, the hospital? Se- several months. I don't, I don't remember how many months it was. It was several. Also, the timing would have to be just perfect that his heart gives out right when he's on the tracks. Not before or not after. Just that moment that he's on the track. The timing has to be incredibly bad luck. Well, and my kind of crazy theory about all of this was that he was diagnosed with some sort of terminal illness. I always thought of cancer, but I always thought that too. Just a random thought. So, yeah. No proof of any of that. That train track, from what I understood, because of that, there's a big marker now. There There wasn't a gate before and there wasn't lights and things like that. And that all got set up. Well, I think that was with a lot of the train litigation that was filed by the Murdoch Law Firm, I think that they were instrumental in making the train tracks more safe. Have you heard that, Paul, Michael? The Murdoch Law Firm would grow to become uh, PMPED, um, which is a, a mouthful of an acronym. And yes. since the, the Murdoch crime saga, it's now called the Parker Law Group. Uh, but they got a little uh, bad press um, from, you know, targeting the railroad so much and um, taking advantage of the venue laws, and we could talk mm. more about that. But in their defense, you know, a journalist tries to uh, to look at both sides of an issue and tell both sides. And in their defense, you know, while they were criticized for uh, suing the hell out of CSX every time you turn around, uh, they point to the fact that, hey, our lawsuits have made for some significant safety improvements. Look at this crossing. Look at that crossing. Um you know, the railroad's tired of being sued, so they're going to go out and fix every crossing, try to make it as safe as they can. And the law firm says, hey, look, we did that. And so, yeah, you probably see a lot. Uh, you'll probably see some of the best railroad crossings uh, on the whole rail line right there in Hampton <laughs> County. <laughs> yeah. And so you had a story for us. Let's hop over to that about small town corner. Yeah. You know, small towns in South Carolina are kind of funny. You know, the sheriff's an elected position. The the country corner uh, is an elected position. Don't don't really necessarily have to have any qualifications. Well, here in Hampton County, the local undertakers have always been the coroner, you know. And I don't know if that's common elsewhere, but you know, who the guy that owns a local funeral home, you know, is usually running for the office. Well, we had a, a situation here for the past uh, decade or two where the guy that ran the largest white-owned funeral home in town. And the guy that ran the largest uh, black home funeral home in town were kind of rivals. And they both ran for the position every year. Every year we had a corner 
learned it was uh, the corner for over 30 years. For several election cycles, the uh, the opponent would, would, would run and run and run, and they finally beat him, and the other guy retired. But the whole thing reminded me of um, you know, uh, two buzzards fighting over a dead deer in the road, you know, uh, kind of morbid, but, um, the local tones would say, well, that's pretty convenient. If you're the coroner, you know, you could hand out, respond to a scene and hand out your business card and say, Hey, bring him out into my funeral home. But the whole thing just kind of made me think of, you know, just two buzzards just trying to fight over the rights of the road deal. There's like, um, geez. <laughs> only two of them and then we get the personal injury attorneys on the speed dial too yep all of them all of them so uh we've had some comments by the way on wicked south podcast facebook page we did have a comment from connie who kind of questioned wicked and are we going to only talk about bad things in hampton county and michael and i talked about that this weekend and you know he's he's the local guy he just reported on the watermelon festival so he, he he puts it all out there so michael what were your thoughts on that well you know i guess it, it's it's fair to look at it from uh from that point of view hampton county's got a lot of bad press lately because of the murdoch crime saga and you know everything our our history and our our, our skeletons they're all out there now when when wicked hampton county published that name wicked kind of threw people off they were they thought that i was basically saying that our hometown is just a bad evil place and i've tried to explain to people that it's part of a series a national series by the history press uh you know there's a wicked buford a wicked savannah there's two volumes of wicked charleston wow when we write about our our wicked history true crime and things of that nature they they typically make for the most interesting stories in in the human experience you know moonshine and murder and mystery these stories are stories that need to be told they are often neglected we read these wonderful gilded versions of history why you know look look at pick up any history book columbus discovered the new world well columbus also enslaved some people yeah. and, and uh, took advantage of some people so these stories need to be told and it doesn't mean that Hampton County is a wonderful place. It doesn't mean that I don't write every week about the wonderful things that happen here. It doesn't mean that I don't tell people, uh, you know, when I do television interviews and, and, and talk to people, I tell them, you know, what a good, quiet, great place this is to, to raise my, my children and my family. And uh, we've lived here for uh, over 300 years and I plan to live here a little longer. So I'm a complicated issue, but I, I certainly see their concerns. But uh, there's more to one side uh, of history, and yeah. all sides need to be told. Well, we've also gotten a few reviews on Apple Podcasts, and I think you're going to like this one. This person says, hi, I live in Virginia, but I love all stories south, and Mr. DeWitt is a wonderful storyteller. I grew up in a very historical part of the state, and we literally drip Revolutionary War and Civil War. I am 77 years old, and I've never listened to a podcast until my daughter sent me to Impact of Influence, and I absolutely got hooked on the Murdoch saga. My family has spent many summers in Sea Ponds, Charleston, and Savannah, so I feel somewhat connected. Keep up the good work, and I look forward to each new episode. Seton and Matt, y'all are awesome, too. Oh, shucks. <laughs> yeah. Yes, we're getting a little history and a little uh, crime and a little mystery all mixed together is what our goal is. Uh, as far as the Wicked South you know, it's it's uh, also opens us up to a bunch of other places other than just 
you know, Hampton County and the Lowcountry. So you just never know what you're going to expect, people. Appreciate it. Uh, thank you, Michael. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Seton. Thank you. Uh, thank me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we will talk soon, friend.